One, two, check, check. There we go. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Connection. If you don't know me, my name's Billy. Uh, I get the privilege of being one of the pastors here, and uh, that is a huge honor uh, to be able to serve you guys uh, in that way. I'm excited to be back. I haven't preached in a few weeks. I've been working on uh, some discipleship material that we're going to be releasing uh, in the next few weeks, and so I'm super excited about that. You'll hear more about that uh, in the future. But today we're continuing on in our series called Knowing God. Uh, if this is the first time you've been here, uh, we are in a series that we've been in for the whole year uh, where we've been talking about knowing God from Genesis uh, to Revelation. Here at Connection, we preach the Word of God. That's what we uh, value. We believe God wrote a book, and it's important that we uh, get to know Him through that book. Don't preach my thoughts, but preach God's thoughts and really dive into that. And so if you have your Bible this morning, I want you to open up uh, to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, and so we have uh, worked our way all the way through the Old Testament. Uh, Blake started uh, the New Testament last week, uh, preaching about the birth of Christ. Uh, he called it Christmas in July, which reminded me of a Lifetime movie, uh, so kudos for that. And uh, this week, I'm going to be talking about Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, and so I think there's a lot for us to dive into and learn from that. So if you got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 3, dive in with me there. We'll start in verse 1, and it says this. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so John the Baptist had a very clear message. It was repent, right? If, if John the Baptist was here today, and he was preaching, and you asked him what his first point was, he would say, repent. If you asked him what his second point uh, was, he would say, repent. If you asked him what his third point was, he would say, repent. No matter where he was, the message that God had given him to preach was a message of repentance. It was a message of turn from your sin and your selfishness and trust in Christ and follow Christ. That was the message that God had given John the Baptist because there was about to come someone after him, which we're about to see. He goes on to say, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet, and Isaiah had actually uh, mentioned a guy that would come before the king, Jesus, would come. And this is what Isaiah said, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. And people went out to him from Jerusalem and all of Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, this is an interesting character. My son loves the story of John the Baptist. He's four because he eats grasshoppers, right? He loves the fact that he eats grasshoppers, and uh, he says bees because honey's involved. And in the little storybook Bible we read, there's bees flying around the honey. And so he thinks he eats uh, locusts, which are grasshoppers, and, and, and bees. And so he loves the story. But you can tell Jesus' cousin was not your normal, everyday guy, right? He, uh, he dressed differently. Uh, he was in the wilderness or the desert by himself. Uh, he was preaching a very uh, strong message that was not... Uh, a, a seeker-sensitive style message, and so uh, he was a different cat, but God was using him in an incredible way. People were literally going into the wilderness to find John the Baptist and were being baptized by him. He goes on to say, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Now, you got to understand, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have been the religious leaders of that time, and so they're coming uh, to John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist, like Jesus, recognized that these people looked religious. They looked like they loved God. They thought they loved God, but their hearts were far from God. And so like Jesus, John the Baptist's message was pretty much a punch right in the face to them. And he said this, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. I want you to underline that in your Bible or highlight it on your phone if you're looking at the Bible there. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. John basically tells them to check the fruit of their life. What does the fruit of your life show? Does it show that you've repented and follow, began following Christ, or does it show different? He says, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. So they were trying to say, well, well John, man, we're, we're, we're part of the crew, man. We're, 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 we're descendants of Abraham. We're part of the Israelites. And John says, don't count on who your daddy is. Count on what is your relationship with Jesus. Have you repented and have you put your faith in Christ? He goes on uh, to say, uh, what does he say? The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So you can imagine this getting their attention. Actually, it doesn't get their attention. I baptize you with water for repentance, John says, but after me comes one, Jesus, who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his weed into the barn, and then burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so John had this message about a guy that would be coming after him. And this guy was the one, the promised rescuer, the promised savior, King Jesus, that would come. And he would come to judge. He would come baptizing people in the Holy Spirit and come baptizing them with fire. Fire in the New Testament is always a symbol of the presence of God coming to judge. And when we come into the presence of God, we are exposed for who we are. The good news is that the gospel gives us a pardon for our sin. And then Jesus offers us new life through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we can become a new creation as the New Testament tells us. But today... Here's what I want to do for my note takers. I want to point out three things to you. I want, I want you to see three things in the story of John the Baptist. One is going to come from this chapter in Matthew, and then two are going to come from Matthew 11, where we see John the Baptist kind of come back into uh, the gospel of Matthew. So the first is a clear message. We see that John comes with a clear message from God. Secondly, we see that John had a real struggle. That there was, you know, it's easy to see John the Baptist and think, well, he's a preacher. I can't really relate with him. Uh, he's different than me. What can I learn from his life? But we see in Matthew 11 that John struggled with doubt. He had been locked up in prison. He was about to die. And in that, he began to doubt that, that God and ask questions. And I think we can all relate with that. And then thirdly, uh, we see that Jesus spoke highly of John the Baptist. And so we're going to look at a pleased Savior and how John's life pleased God altogether. So let's talk about the first, a clear message. John had a clear message. We see in the passage that uh, to the lost, John's message was repent for the kingdom is at hand. How many of you guys have heard the term repent before? Anybody? A little audience participation. Repentance is a very common word in the church. Many of you may have uh, a positive connotation with repentance. If you do have a positive uh, connotation with the word repentance. Maybe you've been here because I preach repentance in a very positive way versus uh, there's some people that will, uh, I remember being a student at Georgia Southern University and walking through campus. At this time I was a Christian and uh, I was met by this guy uh, in a suit and tie and he had a sign that said, you are a sinner and you will burn in hell. And I was walking by and at that time, I, I mean, I was a Christian and I was actually working with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and giving my life to, you know, spread the gospel in the University of, of Georgia Southern. And uh, this guy was really making a lot of people angry, right? And so uh, this guy was, was literally, as I walked by, uh, I literally saw a football player who was very big and very strong in his face about to punch him. Right? And so, because his message was very offensive, he was telling this guy, listen, you are going to hell. And not that I don't agree with what he was saying. I mean, we are sinners and we deserve the wrath of God, but there's a way to go about telling somebody that, right? He didn't even know this guy, and he's sitting there telling him that he was a, uh, an idolater and a, he was in sexual immorality and that he was going to go to hell and burn forever and ever and ever. He didn't even know him, right? And so, uh, which is okay in some directions, but that message is very offensive. And for most of you, maybe you've seen somebody at the Georgia football game or the Atlanta Braves game, people come out or seen somebody on the street and they're holding up a sign, repent, repent, repent. And some of what they're saying is true, but for a lot of people, that's the view of repentance that they get, is this guy yelling at them, telling them that they're going to hell. But the Bible gives us a very different view 
of what the word repentance means. Repentance is a loving thing that God gives us an invitation to do, right? Repentance is an invitation back to God. It's an invitation to turn from our sin, that's what repentance means, to turn from living life for ourselves, from doing what we want to do, and turning to God and allowing God to be the Lord and Savior of our life. And the Bible actually teaches that repentance leads to refreshing, that repentance leads to, uh, uh, is a pathway to following Jesus, and that it should be a normal part of the Christian life. And so as, as John the Baptist was coming on the scene, he was preaching this message to lost people saying, turn from your sin for the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. And that's the other side of his message is not only turn from your sin and turn to God, but he's saying for the kingdom of God is at hand. What does it mean that the kingdom of God is at hand? This is a statement of urgency and declaration that the time that you've been waiting for, the time where the king would come is now here and God is coming uh, to, to judge the world. And you have the opportunity now through repentance to be a part of his kingdom. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Today is the day of salvation and the pathway is repentance. So here's my question for you. Has there ever been a moment in your life where you've truly repented? Listen, we live in, in the Bible Belt, as I call it, the South, where every person in this room would probably consider themselves a Christian. But here's the truth. If we've never truly turned from our sin and our selfishness and, and being the Lord of our own life and doing what we want to do on a daily basis and trusted in Christ and what he's done on the cross and said, Lord, I believe and my faith is in you as a savior. And now I'm making you and putting you in the rightful place of Lord of my life. And you are now the Lord of my life that dictate what I do and what I don't do. Then we've never truly become a Christian. And the Bible would call us a lost person. I don't care what your mom and dad said about you. We have to come face to face with the reality that God's word is true. And when John the Baptist came preaching this message, the message is still alive today. It has not changed. And so the question we have to wrestle with is have we come to a place of true repentance? Has there been a moment where we've surrendered our life to Christ and turned from our sin and trusted in Christ. Secondly, to the religious, John the Baptist preached another message, very similar. I told you point one is repentance. Point two is this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, right? And so you have to understand uh, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, were, were religious people, right? They were folks that they looked like church. They were, they were people uh, that, that, that thought they were followers of God. They acted like they were perfect. They were self-righteous in a lot of ways. They constantly judged other people. They dressed religious. They talked religious. They did religious things. They stayed at the church. They were people known in the community for their religious activity, but their hearts were far from God. And John the Baptist knew this. And the way he pointed this out is very similar to the way Jesus pointed this out among religious people. And he said, check the fruit of your life. Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? So, so what he's showing us is that when we live a life of repentance, right? Repentance is not just the first step we take as a Christian. It's the constant growing process of repentance, constant repentance every day to continue to grow as a Christian. Our life begins to bear fruit. And so the fruit of our life when we're repenting and walking in repentance and walking closely with God, being filled with his spirit, are very different than when we're doing our own thing and we're walking in sin and we're following our own decrees. The Bible calls it walking in the flesh. The fruit of walking in the flesh are very different and the fruit of walking in the Spirit. You see, when we walk in repentance, our life bears certain fruit. Certain fruit would be humility, right? If, we are, uh, if our sin is exposed before God, and, 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 we, and He sees us for who we are, and we know that He sees us for who we are, and we're honest about the sinfulness of our hearts, and here's the truthful statement, the closer you get to Jesus the more sinful you will recognize that you are, thought, mind, heart, all of that. We are selfish. We're born into sin. And as we begin to recognize that, we begin to see how much we need God. And as a Christian, it isn't like we get saved and we needed God to save us. 
but now we can do the rest on our own. Right? That's not how the Christian faith works. The Christian faith works is we need Christ to save us, we need Christ to sanctify us, and one day we're going to need Christ to glorify us and, and turn us into who he wants us to be. And all of that process is dependence on God, and repentance is what leads us to be dependent on God. Not only humility, but love for God. Do you love God? Listen, when you understand that you're a sinner and you need the grace of God and you recognize what God has done to send his own son to die for you so that you could experience eternal life, he's given you what we can never do on our own. It creates a love for God unlike anything else in our life. Another fruit is love for other people. When we re recognize that God has rescued us and what he's done for us, even in the face of us rebelling against him, and he loved us unconditionally, then we begin to love other people the same way unconditionally. The Bible also gives us what they call the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says that when we begin to walk by the Holy Spirit and walk in repentance and walk closely with God, our life will present certain fruit. If you want a definition for fruit, write this down. It's the outward evidence of the inward reality of your life. So if you want to know what's in your heart, then check the fruit of your life, which is what John the Baptist is saying. And the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 would be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All of these things are what the Spirit at work in us produces. So when we're walking with Christ, our life will reflect that. But if, if our life is not reflecting these things, which is what John is seeing in the Pharisees, he's saying, hey, you need to check the fruit of your life because it's not matching. Because the fruit of their life, on the other hand, was the fruit of the flesh, which is very different than the fruit of the Spirit. This would be selfishness and hidden sin and self-righteousness and broken relationship and addiction and complacency, uh, just going through the religious motions. All of these things are a result of a lack of walking in repentance. And here's the thing that we need to understand today, that God is not interested in just our religious behavior. Like God's not just interested in you coming to church and maybe cracking your Bible every now and again. He is interested in your heart being close to him. He's interested in a relationship with you. And when our, when our heart's right with God, what will happen is we will begin to live the life that God wants us to live. And repentance is how we come to Jesus. Repentance is the indicator that we're growing in our relationship with Jesus. And if we're not walking in repentance constantly, consistently, then we are not growing in our relationship with God. So John's message to us, churchgoers, today would be the same as it was for these religious leaders. Check the fruit of your life. What does it show you about where your heart is? And then lastly, he kind of sums it all up to everybody with this message. To all, Jesus is greater. He speaks of a person that's going to come after him. Listen to verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John says, my baptism is about repentance but Jesus' baptism is about repentance, and it's even greater than that. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, right? And so a lot of people argue about what that means, but what we see in the New Testament is after Jesus dies on the cross and goes back to heaven, there's a thing that happens called Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 where Jesus uh, tells his believers to go into an upper room and pray and that he would send the Holy Spirit to dwell within them. And from then on, every person that became a follower of Christ upon salvation would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to live in them forever. And the Spirit would work in them forever. And he differentiates. He says Jesus' baptism would be one of, one of the Holy Spirit and one of fire. Well, what is fire? You know, a lot of people think the fire and the Holy Spirit are the same thing. But Matthew differentiates those two things. He says Holy Spirit and fire. 
but we see here that it's a baptism of judgment. And so it's when Jesus comes into the world that he comes not only uh, to save people, he comes to judge the world because it's only when we recognize God's judgment of our life apart from Christ that we will be saved. Jesus has come to separate believers from unbelievers. That's one of his missions to do. And so we will be in one category uh, when we stand before God. Believer filled with the Holy Spirit or non-believer up under the judgment of God. We see in Acts 1.8, Jesus talks about this. He says, but you will receive power. This is the believers he was talking to. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the Holy Spirit comes upon believers in power for the purpose that we would be witnesses in the earth. That has major implications for the church. That means that the church is not just about us coming to an event, singing some songs, hearing a great message, and then going home and doing what we want to do. That means that now the church is us, the people of God, and the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in a place. The Holy Spirit dwells within us as believers so that we can scatter out as witnesses throughout this community, throughout the world, for the glory of God. And that's what he wants us to do. And so as the church, we take Jesus everywhere we go to the sports field, to our workplace, to our family, in our homes, wherever it is in the community that we go, we are witnesses for Christ. What are witnesses? People that testify about the goodness of God. This is this baptism. And John's literally telling us, he says, this is the baptism that you want. The Old Testament knows this. You look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. Ezekiel is an Old Testament prophet thousands of years before Jesus came on the scene. But he understood that when Jesus came, he would bring something greater. And this is this baptism that he's talking about. Listen to how Ezekiel explains it. This is God speaking through Ezekiel. He says, in the new covenant, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and it will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Listen, water baptism is great. We celebrate it like crazy here, uh, like no other. But water baptism now is, is, not, uh, is, is, is not the greatest baptism. When we're saved, water baptism, what we celebrate as a church, is, is kind of after the fact of the, the real baptism that happens when we give our lives to Christ. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Ezekiel is talking about where God literally makes us a new person. God literally takes out a heart of sin and puts in a heart that desires to follow him. I don't think we have any heart surgeons in the room, but last I checked, none of us can do heart surgery on a person. None of us can change the desires. My best sermon cannot change the motivations of your heart, but God can. And this is what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is all about. I don't know what you think about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're probably everywhere all over this room. Some people think of like a uh, super Pentecostal side of speaking in tongues, and that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That may be one significance of it. Or some of us say, well, that, that kind of weirds me out. I don't really do the whole baptism of the Holy Spirit thing. But John the Baptist says, we want the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Acts 1 and Acts 2 teaches us that when we become a Christian, the pathway to becoming a new person the pathway to becoming a born-again, regenerated Christian that can live for God for the rest of your life is not based on your willpower. It's based on you coming to Christ in repentance. God, I cannot save myself. I am a sinner up under your judgment, and I trust and I believe in what Christ did on the cross for me, that it was my sin that put him there. And when I, when I believe that, the Bible says something happens, and it is divine. It is a transformation that begins on the inside of us that results in outward transformation. But what religion will teach you, and maybe what some of us in this room have been taught, is that I can change myself from the outside in. But that's not how the gospel of Jesus Christ works. If that were the case, Jesus would not have had to come and die. But because Christ knew we needed transformation from the heart, 
which led to behavior modification and not the opposite, he gives us this indicator from John the Baptist and says, listen, he will come and his baptism is going to be so much greater. This is the baptism that we want as a Christian. So here's my question as I kind of end this point of, of, Jesus, of John the Baptist's clear message. If John the Baptist were preaching today, if I just paused and said, hey, John, hey, brother, uh, you know, leave the locust, but come out here. And I want you to preach your message to, to, to the crowd that's out here today. If he came and he preached his message, which of these messages would you need to hear the most? Would it be the repent before the kingdom is at hand for the lost person? Is that you today? Or would it be, hey, bear fruit in keeping with repentance because you, you've kind of become religious where your heart's far from God, but you've began to go through the religious motions? Or would it be, hey, you've misunderstood this whole idea of baptism. You thought when you got baptized in water that you got out of this line going to hell and got into this line going to heaven, but you've missed the fact that baptism now through Christ is something different where God begins to make you a new creation. What would be the message that John would point to you and what would be the next step that you would take? Because that's what God's here to do today. The message of God is living and active. And when it is going out, the Spirit empowers it in the lives of people. We just got to have the ears and the heart to hear what God is trying to say to us today. The second thing I think we can learn from the life of John the Baptist is that he had a real struggle. You know, it's very easy to look at the life of John the Baptist and say, man, I can't really relate to him, can't really compare to this guy. He dressed weird. He lived in the wilderness. He was Jesus' cousin. Uh, he ate grasshoppers. I mean, I don't even like the guy. How do I, would I relate to him? Uh, but, you know, it, Matthew 3 really creates him as a stud. Like, he is a, an incredible example for us to look to. But I want you to know that every person we see in the Scripture is never perfect outside of Christ. God get, has given us the Bible. It is a real book about real people with real struggles. In Matthew chapter 11, we kind of get a glimpse into the life of John the Baptist Matthew 11, verses 1 through 6, read this way. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, okay, that's a new detail. So now John is not preaching in the wilderness. Now he has been arrested, and he is in the prison of Herod, who's the king at that time. And he is in kind of a difficult situation. Most commentators say he's been in prison now for about a year. So he's sitting in prison. Well, what's John doing in prison? When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent the disciples to ask him a question. Are you the one who is, who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Okay, so you should think to yourself there, all right, that's an interesting question. Now, wasn't John the Baptist at the baptism of Jesus, where literally he baptized Christ, and when he baptized Christ, the clouds opened, and the spirit of the doves descended on him, and God's voice came down and said, this is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. Of course he knows this is Christ, the Messiah. I mean, he literally was at the baptism of Jesus. But you lock him up in a prison for about a year and put him outside of Christian community in a prison with a bunch of people who were probably just telling him negative things about Christ over Christ. And it does some weird things to the human heart and to the human mind. And we begin to see John ask some questions. If we read just Matthew 3, we think John is unstoppable. But over a year later, we see that John is in jail. He's isolated. He's facing a difficult circumstance. He's on death row, about to be beheaded for the message he was preaching. He was surrounded by non-believers. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are in this room. When isolation and suffering and persecution and death come, it will bring with it some serious questions if we are not solid in our faith. And even if we're solid in our faith, John the Baptist was a stud probably far more mature than any person in this room. But when he faced a difficult situation that he didn't understand, he had questions. And it's okay to have questions about God because God's a big boy. He can handle 
your questions. Paul David Tripp, who is a Christian counselor that I look up to and has taught me a lot, talks about there's two different types of doubt in the Christian life. Write these down. The first is doubt of wonderment. And as a Christian, this type of doubt is okay. This is a, a good type of doubt. It's healthy. He says, God's ways can confuse you. His ways are not like our ways. We don't get the script ahead of time. We don't know what's coming before it comes. So we're always wondering what God is doing and why he is doing it. This is normal and healthy. And this type of doubt actually drives us towards God to seek him more about what he's doing. However, on the other hand, there's a second type of doubt, and this type of doubt is not healthy at all. This is the doubt of judgment. This is the doubt of judgment. That's the doubt that where, where we begin to conclude, based on our circumstances, that God isn't good and that what he's doing isn't good. Therefore, he's not worthy of our trust. This is a deadly trap used by our enemy to drive people away from God. Listen, if the devil can begin to get you focused more on your circumstances, then he can get you focused on the character of God. He has you exactly where he wants you to be. Because each of us in this room are going to face some difficult things in this life. Things that will make us doubt and ask God some very difficult questions. And if in those situations we begin to trust our feelings and we begin to trust what the circumstances is telling us instead of what God's word tells us about God, that he's good, that he's sovereign, that he loves you, that he'll never leave you nor forsake you, that he's working all things out, good and bad, for your good and for his glory, then we'll begin to, to waver. And listen, I've seen this happen over and over again as a Christian. So it's very important that we understand how Jesus handled this situation with John the Baptist so that when we face these things, we can handle it the same way. So if you keep reading on in that passage, uh, Jesus replied after that question, uh, John sent a messenger, and then Jesus comes back with this. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor, and blessed is anyone who does not stumble on the account of me. So what does Jesus do? He reminds him of God's word. That's pretty much exactly what Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would come and do. He would be performing miracles and saving and proclaiming the gospel, and he would be uh, making deaf people hear and blind people see. And so Jesus says, hey, it is me. It is it me, and everything I've promised in the word of God, that is who I am. And so what do we learn? Jesus points John to his life and to his word for assurance. And so when we're in the midst of these situations that cause us, that may cause us to doubt God, we have to point ourselves not to uh, the circumstances, but trust in God's word and trust in the person of Christ. So I want to dig into this a little bit because I feel like it's very applicable for us uh, as a congregation, and I think we can learn a lot from this. So here's a question. Uh, has anyone ever doubted God in the room? Let's just see. Are we going to be honest? All right, there's some people have never doubted God in the room. If you've never doubted God in the room, uh, give, me, give me a hand raise. Okay, we got a few. All right, so uh, you're lying. Um, and uh, so we need to know that. So if you haven't doubted God, there's probably, you're probably just not thinking into things. There's some things in the world that are going on that will very much uh, make you ask questions about God. But like I said, God's not afraid of our questions. Actually, our questions lead us to a deeper faith in God. And so we need to begin to ask deeper questions when it comes to our spiritual condition and, and, and what God is doing in the world. So where does this doubt come from in our lives? I want to answer this with three things. I think it comes from my experience dealing with this and pastoring people three ways. It comes from isolation. Write that down. Where does doubt come from? Isolation. This is the one that we actually can avoid most of the time. John the Baptist couldn't. He was in prison. But we can avoid spiritual isolation. Secondly, it comes from difficult circumstances. And then thirdly, it comes from death. There's a lot of questions that surround physical 
death. And so isolation, again, this is the one that we actually have some control over. Uh, most of us are not in prison the way uh, that John the Baptist was. And so uh, John was isolated. He didn't have anybody to encourage him or remind him of the truth. And I've seen this happen to so many people uh, in my 12 years of ministry. They get saved. They join a connect group, which is what we call our small groups that walk through life together and really uh, study the Bible together and, 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 and partner and bear one another's burdens together. And then they are growing in their faith, but then all of a sudden something happens. And something happens to kind of derail you or uh, your schedule gets too busy or you just begin to not prioritize God the way you were before. And what happens is you begin to isolate yourself. And, and you don't go into it saying, man, I'm going in there, I'm about to isolate myself. But what happens is, is, is you begin to get distracted and you begin to pull away from Christian community. And from there, the doubt begins to creep in. And then from the doubt, what happens is the lies of the enemy become more believable. Because now it's just you isolated, and that's where the devil is very successful. And so the lies of the enemy, that Jesus isn't who he said he was, or Jesus has given up on you, or you're too far from God now, or he doesn't love you, or if he had loved you, he would never have allowed this to happen. Those lies become more and more believable. And in this moment, when that doubt arises, we need Christian community more than we ever have before. And, and when, it's, when it's not there... We will struggle. Trust me, I don't care who you are. I don't care how solid you think you are. If you are not living life in Christian community, you will struggle in the Christian faith. Even in community, you're going to struggle. But when we get to these moments that are crossroads in our faith, we need people around us that can point us to the Word of God. Listen, this messenger that John the Baptist sent out that came back with the truth of God's Word, how important was he? Some of us need some messengers in our life that can say, Billy, calm down, dude. I know this is a bad situation, but we know who God is, and he's working. And you may not have faith right now, but I'm going to have it for you, and I'm right here with you. We need people in our life. Secondly, difficult circumstances bring doubt. John's in prison here. I mean, talk about a difficult circumstance. Herod's prison would have been a lot worse than our prisons, right? Some of us in here have been to prison. That's the great thing about our church. If you need to talk to somebody who went to prison, they're here. Just ask them. You know, I called two of our guys today. I was like, hey, I, I, I can't really relate with this. Tell me about prison. What, you know, what, what, what's it like to be in prison? How does that deal with your mental state whatsoever? And, 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 and my buddy was just telling me, you know, you're isolated. You really don't have anything to talk about. Like everything that's going on outside is, is kind of out there. And you're just in this cell and you're thinking about uh, everything that you've done and God and how all this happened. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's literally just a minefield to navigate without community. And so some of us may not be facing prison, but what, maybe it's another difficult circumstance. And when you find ourselves in this difficult circumstance that maybe was unforeseen, or maybe uh, it's a circumstance that you never thought you would end up in, then doubt begins to creep in. God, if you're good, what about this cancer? God, God if, if, if you're good, then why am I suffering in this way? Or God, if you care, what about this infertility that we've been wrestling with? God, uh, what, if you care, why did I get passed over for this job promotion or this scholarship that I, I should have got? God, if you love me, what about this divorce that I've went through? God, what, if you love me, what about this injustice that I'm experiencing in my life right now? And these are very real questions that each of us probably have, and it's okay to ask them because God can handle it. He's a big boy. He can handle them. But my encouragement for you is the same as Jesus' encouragement for John the Baptist. Do not focus on the circumstance. Don't trust the feelings because both of these change. They're like a wave and you're just going to be tossed to and fro everywhere. Jesus said, focus on the truth of God's word. Focus on the truth of who I am. And you pray to the God of all comfort. And you lean into Christian community that can walk beside you. And God will be faithful. Listen, the Bible doesn't just say God is faithful. It says God is faithful. Like, not just a characteristic of, 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 of who he is, but it is who he is. Like, even in our faithlessness, he is faithful. And so we know that God is working all things out. My wife said it this way, and this may be the sexiest thing she's ever said to me. Uh, I was asking her, 
about this point, and she went all theological on me, which I thought was great because I never get that. Um, and, and she said, you know, think about it this way. She said, if, if, if we knew everything that God knows, then we'd make the same decision for ourselves that he makes. As for, for what we're going through in this life, if we were in the place of God, think about it. God is just. He's right. He's good. He always does the right thing. And so nothing we walk through in this world is not up under his sovereign control. It's, it's under his sovereign control. And so we know that if he is good and sovereign, then everything that we walk through in this world is for our good and for his glory and that he's working it out. Even if we don't understand it, we can trust him. And the great thing is that God will never leave us. Nothing can separate us from him. And then lastly, death. Usually death brings up a ton of doubts when it comes to people's lives. And, and, and you know, I think when it comes to, to, to death and doubt, um, it, I, there's, death is just unpredictable. You understand? Like, it, it, you don't know when it's coming. You don't know how it's going to happen. But there's certainty there. We all know we're going to die unless Jesus comes back to get us. And so with this, we don't really have anybody to go to because nobody's ever died and then came back and said, hey, this is what the experience was like, right? That's why we buy these books with people saying, hey, I died and came back. But the Bible's clear. Like there's only one person ever that has died and been raised back to life, and it was Jesus, right? And so the person that we need to go to is not the kid that wrote heaven is for real. We need to go to the Bible, and we need to begin to see, what does Jesus have to say? Because he died three days, rose again, and he is, he is the imagery when we think of death that we need to understand and, and, and be close to. And so it's, it's the good news of the gospel is that we can look to Christ who defeated death once and for all. And we can look to the promises of his word. Romans 8 says, nothing including physical death will separate us from the love of God. Corinthians says to be absent from the physical body is to be spiritually present with God. So God's word has a lot to say about it. So not only can we look at the life of Christ where he physically died and then God's spirit rose him from the dead, right? And we, that was for us. So we could know, it was not only for our salvation, but so we could know what death uh, will be like for us. And then for us, when doubt arises in the face of death, don't focus on the circumstance or even how you may die, but focus on our Savior that conquered death for us. And let us focus on the Word of God that looks death in the face with hope, great hope. And in 1 Corinthians 15, listen to this, 50 through 58. I declare to you, this is Paul talking, Paul's never died. This is coming straight from God, inspired by God. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash. In the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God that he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, Andrew's excited, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So Paul says when we think about death, there's no reason to doubt it or to fear it. Allow it to drive and shape the way you live your life and devote yourself fully to the work of God. So here's my question. If we're honest in this room, most of us probably have doubts or have had doubts in our past. How are you responding to the doubt in your life? Listen, are you living your life in isolation? Are you, are you looking to your circumstances for truth? Are you trusting your feelings? Or are you looking to the Word of God? Do you know the Word of God? Do you know the life of Christ and what He has to say about who He is? Because listen, when we face doubt, there's nothing more comforting than knowing who God is, that he's good, that he's faithful, 
and that he's working all things out for those who are called according to his purpose. It's so important that we understand that we don't focus on our circumstances, but trust his word. The last thing we see in this story, number three, is a pleased Savior. And this may be my favorite part of John the Baptist's story. And you got to listen to it from verses 7 through 11 in Matthew 11. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed that was swayed by the wind? If not, then what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in the king's palaces, not in the wilderness. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, you did. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. Listen, he says, this is Jesus talking about John the Baptist. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But listen, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Listen, it's one thing for a person to call you great. It's another thing for like a coach or a mentor to tell you that you're great, right? That just really feels feels good. It's another thing for the president, Biden, to call you and say, man, you are great. Or President Trump or, or whoever, Obama, to call you and say, man, you are great. It's another thing for the God of the universe to literally say, you are the greatest. You're the goat when I think about a disciple of Christ. John the Baptist is the greatest. And because of that, we should look at his life as an example. Who was he? Well, I'll tell you who he was. He was a faithful servant. Man, he was, so, he was a faithful servant. The theme of John the Baptist's life is one verse. John chapter 3, verse 30. If you don't know it, you need to memorize it. Might be the most incredible verse in the entire Bible. It's a situation. John and Jesus are both baptizing people. Jesus has now been baptized by John. Jesus is beginning his ministry on earth. John's ministry is now kind of uh, done, so to speak, because he came as the front runner. Now Jesus is here. But here's the thing. As a pastor, like when you build a crowd or a church is growing and you look out and you see a lot of people, like, it feels good. Like, man, this is awesome, man. I never thought God would use me to build a church. And then you start seeing this, this thing coming to fruition. Well, John had a ton of followers. And what happened is they began leaving him and going to Jesus. And so they come and ask John about it. John, what do you think about this, man? Everybody's going to Jesus. They're leaving your church and going to Jesus' church. You know what he says? He says, that's where I would be going. That's actually where I'm heading. And he makes this statement. He says, now it's time for me to decrease and for him to increase. He must increase, I must decrease. I want you to think about in your life, if you began to take that motto that John the Baptist lived with, that God must increase in my life and I must decrease, how would it change everything? The Bible teaches that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, serve. Simple. One word. Serve. Just serve. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, serve. Live life not about yourself. Live for the sake of other people. How would that change? Man, how would that change your marriage? If you didn't just see yourself as, man, I just need to make some money and provide, but you actually saw yourself as a servant, the lead servant in your family, how would it change your family? How would it change the workplace if you began to leverage your power, your position to serve? Teachers to serve your students. Coaches to serve your players. How would it change the medical profession if, if nurses and doctors and, 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 and physical therapists and, and PAs and nurse practitioners began to see their, their job as an opportunity to serve people, not just through medicine, but also to serve them spiritually and show them Christ? It would change everything. Not only was he a faithful servant, he was a, a purpose-driven missionary. Listen, this dude lived his entire life for the mission of God. He made disciples. How do I know that? But flash forward to Acts 19. You can't turn there now, but write it down. Acts 19, Paul gets to the place of Ephesus. Ephesus is about 600 miles from where they are currently, John the Baptist is, in Jerusalem. 600 miles. Paul shows up. Who does he find? 
disciples of John the Baptist, years after John the Baptist had died, years after he was beheaded, people were following his way because of the disciples that he was able to make. Are you committed to the mission of God? Listen, Jesus left us with one task, to go make disciples of all nations. If we are a Christian, that's not optional. That means that we need to embrace the mission of God. Are you a purpose-driven missionary? Do you see yourself as a missionary? And then the last thing about his life is, man, he kept the faith. This dude was beheaded for his faith. Most of us will never have to go to the guillotine for our faith. Some of us may, but we may not. But he lived for the end. He lived with an eternal perspective. John the Baptist knew he was given everything he had for Christ, no matter what it cost him. Was he perfect? No, but he, he, he persevered in his faith. He didn't get to a certain place in his life and say, man, God's done with me. No, he continued to press forward and continued to seize opportunities and continued to live for the day that he met Christ. And because of that, he heard, well done, good and faithful servant. So right where you are, I want you to bow your head. I want you to think about that day. I want you to think about the day that you meet Christ. For some of us, it'll be sooner than later. I want you to think about what God said about John the Baptist. He said he was the greatest. He said he was the greatest. What would God say about you in that moment? Would God say that you are a servant? Would God say that you were about his mission? Would he say that you had kept the faith? Listen, it's not about works-based. It's not about you being good enough. It's about you trusting Christ and following Christ with your life. Listen, your righteousness is not gained by doing something. Your righteousness is gained through faith in Christ. In your life, have you ever come to a place where you've surrendered your life to Christ, where you've turned from your sin and trusted in Christ? What does the fruit of your life say? Is the fruit of your life love for God, love for others, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, or is it selfishness and self-righteousness? Would you be honest about where you are today? And would you allow God to meet you right where you are? Listen, if you're in here today and you say, Billy, I've never surrendered my life to Christ. I've never repented and turned from my sin and turned to Christ. But today I've heard the truth that Christ died for me. It was my sin that put him on the cross. And today I want to trust in him and I want to give my life to him. And I want him to make me a new creation and change me forever. If that's you and you're in this room right now, I want you to raise your hand right where you are. You say, Billy, that's me, 100%. I want to pray for you. Anybody in this room? Amen. Anybody else? You say, Billy, that's me. That's me. So, Father, right now, Lord, I pray. God, for the people in this room. Lord, I pray for the salvations. Lord, I pray for the people that you're putting next steps on their heart. God, there's one thing about the message of John the Baptist. You can't listen to it and stay the same. So, Father, I pray whether we are here to repent uh, for for sin that we know of, or God, we're we're here to, to examine the fruit of our life. Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us be honest about where we are. And God, through repentance, you would refresh us. And God, we would leave here empowered by your Holy Spirit to live for you as witnesses in this community. So God, would you use us? Lord, we love you. God, we're thankful for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here. We'll see you back next week.